Is this thing on? Yesterday's price is not today's price. Hey, what's going on, everybody? CJ Gustafson, Run the Numbers podcast. I just discovered Starbucks makes a Trenta iced coffee. That is a lot of iced coffee running through my veins right now. And I just got off the line with Jim Cook, impressive guy. First founding six members of Netflix, a small streaming company you may have heard of. First 100 employees at Intuit, first finance hire there, helped 10x the company, and the CFO of Mozilla Firefox, where he actually had Reed Hoffman on his board. Some pretty cool uh, boardroom stories from, from that era. Three things I took away from this conversation. Number one, first principles thinking. I have heard that in a million different tweet storms online from Thread Boys, but didn't fully understand it. He fully embraces this and explained it really well. Um, from the perspective of actually Reed Hoffman. And and the way that he framed it up is there are a million different things that are going on, whether it be an M&A deal, a product launch, but there's really only one thing that that matters at the end of the day to getting it right. So an example would be like not hiding behind your spreadsheets when like your customers don't like your product yet. Like you have to find that one thing that really matters in any sort of problem that that you're challenged with and, and stick to getting that right and let all the other things fall by the wayside until you finish it. The next thing, and I'm going to put this on a bumper sticker, perfection is a prison. Perfection is a prison. What does that mean? It means we're going to be wrong all the time building companies, but we're going to be wrong within a range, and then we're going to course correct quickly to make sure that we are okay. And communicating that to investors, to employees, to everyone involved is is important because you know, if, if you're trying to be perfect, you're giving yourself no room for growth. And if you give yourself no room for growth, you're going to leave money on the table and you're, you're really never going to reach your full potential. The third thing that we went over, and it's really a litany of frameworks that he, that he hits on. Um, I, I was actually taking out a pen live on the podcast and writing some of them down. The first one that I love, um, for communicating, to boards your financial results and being more of a financial storyteller, not just a reporter, is where we were, where we are, and where we're going. So providing context, not just a point in time. And then the next one for times when things aren't going your way or you know the economy throws you a curveball or something like COVID occurs, it's what we know, what we don't know yet, and when we think we'll know. And I think a lot of leaders would have been, you know, they probably would have wanted to use this when COVID first started because it brings people under the tent. It makes them feel like an adult and it it makes everybody feel like you're figuring something out together and they have skin in the game. Amazon actually relies on this framework, he said, when they send out an email about a, you know, a server going down and being truthful about what you're going through and sharing the information you have on hand goes a long way to building customer trust and They'll let you off the hook for not knowing certain things because you're being truthful around it. What people don't like is the ambiguity um, with, you know, being encased in this, you know, feeling of like, oh, yeah, we do know what's going on. It's like, be straight if you don't know what's going on. And people will appreciate that in the long term. So enjoy this conversation with Jim Cook. But before we get into that, I'm going to go off the books for a second and break down something cool that I'm seeing in Instacart's S1. So Instacart coming back to open the public markets. It's uh, you know, a beacon of hope or maybe the sacrificial lamb we've all been hoping for. The IPO market has been cold, real 
chilly for at least a year and a half now. And it was it was actually fun for a, a nerd like myself to dig into an S1. I haven't seen one in a while. They've been collecting dust on the shelf. I haven't looked at one probably since way back and when Sentinel-1 went public at like a bazillion X revenue multiple. But digging into Instacart, what I thought was most compelling is how much ad revenue they have. It was over $740 million last year, and it's growing at nearly 25%. Now, I'll admit this is growing a little bit slower than their core business, which is delivering groceries. But when you go about two or three levels deeper, and this is what I think CFOs who really have a handle on the revenue line items in their P&L will do, you look at the drivers of what's behind each of these lines. And so within their core business, they're actually keeping that growth up, not by delivering more watermelons on a bicycle, which by the way, not the most cost-efficient thing to do, but by increasing their take rate. And what that means is they're increasing the amount they're taking per transaction on gross transaction volume. And that can't go on forever. It's kind of like trying to bleed a stone. You can only squeeze it so much. And I think some of the investment bankers will sniff that out. And some of the investors who want to put money into this IPO, that you need to incubate other engines for growth. And this is a common thing for companies when they get to such scale. It's you have this awesome platform business that's humming, but you also need to have other tangential areas to move into to keep that growth up. And so Instacart seems to be doing awesome on the advertising front. And what's so incredible about that is the marginal cost for an ad is like zero, right? I was joking about somebody delivering, you know, a 24-pack of Poland Springs on a bicycle. Like, that's that's not the most cost-efficient thing in the world. Selling an ad, the marginal cost is basically zero. And some other data came out where you looked at the likes of, like, a Grubhub. Their margins are not nearly as good because they don't have as great of an advertising business. So this this elevates the entire P&L and I think makes Instacart a more attractive investment. I think over the next three years, they could actually have more advertising revenue than platform revenue. So bold statement here, but I think within the next three years, we're going to look back and say Instacart is actually an advertising company that happens to deliver groceries. So I'm excited for this IPO. I'm excited for them to price. And you know, I'm a big fan of marketplace models because you can strap on all these other ways to make revenue. It's kind of like these bolt-ons of different revenue streams that you see showing up in the PL. Now, I, I will caution that you have to be very thoughtful about how you do the advertising. Nobody likes to be spammed with a million things whenever they open the page. You don't want the company to be pumping Hunt's ketchup, which sucks compared to Heinz ketchup. Like, give me the good stuff here. But if it doesn't degrade the overall user experience, and maybe it even helps with discovery, I think this could be a real hit for Instacart. So stay tuned. Advertising, not dead yet. All right, welcome back to another edition of the Run the Numbers podcast. I am CJ Gustafson, a nervous CJ Gustafson, because I am about to introduce the great and powerful Jim Cook. Jim, how are you doing today? <laughs> Good, CJ. Stop it. So Jim was one of the founding members of Netflix. He was one of the first 100 employees of Intuit, and he was the CFO of Mozilla Firefox. So a man with no shortage of stories. True. A lot of stories. And I'm I'm going to try to get into your head today because cool. you've been deemed the CFO whisperer 
something that I've been so excited about that I'm on my fourth coffee now. And so the first thing that I want to dig into with you, Jim, is what separates a good CFO from a great CFO? Are there any qualities that you can pattern match between the great ones? Absolutely. The great ones own the numbers and really are great storytellers. The good ones also own the numbers, but they really have a hard time being strategic with the numbers, storytelling the numbers, and designing the future of what the numbers are going to look like. So it's a slight difference, but it's it's no different than being a professional quarterback versus a college-level quarterback or even right. a high school quarterback. It's still a quarterback, but there's just different ways of being more crisp. Communi- it's about communication storytelling. Do you think that storytelling means telling the whole company's story, so not just the financial number part? 100%. Yeah. A great CFO starts with strategy, right? Mm-hmm. It starts with being able to tell the company story and aligning it to the structure of the company. And what I talk about structure, it's what is the org? What are the resources we're spending to achieve that strategy? And then how do we hold people accountable through execution? So a, a great CFO will, will have their hands on all three of those dials. The dial of strategy, what is it we're doing and why is it we're doing it? right? Have to be able to be a partner with the CEO or the board and tell that story, not from a finance basis yet, but from a company basis. And then here's what we're spending on. Here's why we're spending on it, which aligns that strategy. And then here's how we're going to measure ourselves and hold ourselves accountable. So unlike other C-level execs who may be focused on only one area of the company, like sales and marketing or engineering, and and they have the same focus. A CFO sits in what I call a unique intersection of the company, which they have to hold, you know, the heads of sales and marketing and and engineering and product management and operations and make sure all those resources are aligned together for the common strategy. And you touched on one piece, accountability. One of the things that I find most fascinating and challenging about the CFO role is that you're holding your peers accountable for things. Is that a skill that CFOs have off the bat or is it something you have to develop over time? The soft skill to keep your, and I don't know if it's a soft skill or maybe it's a hard skill to keep your peers accountable. It's a hybrid skill, but I would say it's probably more soft skill than hard skill. Because if you try to use it as a hard skill with a structure and a template, it backfires on you because Mm. what you're really designing for is trust. And what you're really designing for is team and, and no CJ it took me 10 years probably to learn this, probably more personally, which is why I'm really enjoying sharing back in venues like this and with, with my clients. But it's this soft skill of team first. We win as a team, we lose as a team. And it's the trust in b- helping to build trust in teams through your financial lens, through your CFO lens, through your leadership lens. And holding people accountable is like, hey, I'm just going to be the the numbers person but say that, you know, we all committed to hitting these numbers and these milestones and be the holder of those assumptions because there's a bunch of assumptions that engineering and marketing and product management and operations that all have to come together to create that metric of success. And if one of those cogs in those metrics wheels aren't performing, then the car engine is going to backfire or it's going to start, you know, chugging along if you want to use that analogy. And so the CFO is the first person to recognize that one of those systems is off and has to actually be the governor, you know, take your foot off the gas 
or pull over to the side of the road and get more gas because we burn too much in one area or another. Like they're constantly monitoring the dashboard of the company, if you want to use that analogy of, of a car and the different system components of a car. And so that's a soft skill because you're constantly holding people accountable to, and it's not, I would, I would be very careful about holding any one person accountable, right? Because then they feel judged and shamed. Are you saying you should hold the problem accountable, not the person? Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. It's like, we're all one team. We're not going to get down on this person for not making the play, right? Nobody's perfect. But hey, that play we threw to that person or, or whatever, and we didn't make that play. So we all, you know, got to come back and, and solve this thing together. Can you think of any examples with your advisory practice bench board or in your own personal experiences? I'm just trying to get a little more tactical here of a time that's backfired. Oh, yeah. A time when you're holding people accountable is backfired? Yeah. Oh, for sure. Or trying to in the wrong way. Uh, yeah. And, and a lot of companies go through this through different stages, right? And so one of the things that I talk about a lot is how in many, many startups and companies, the product team, the engineering team, and the go-to-market team are not aligned. That's a good and one. It, and it really is a series of silos. Now, they all have executive team meetings, whatever you call them, E-team, E-staff meetings, exec meetings, and there is a CEO. But when you get inside the culture of those companies, one of those orgs is probably stronger than the other. They've maybe got a stronger executive and they're the real driver or the alpha person in the room. And there's a bunch of finger pointing that starts to go on when the sales team or the head, head of sales says, you know, we're selling all this stuff. Why can't you guys build it? Or the engineering technology leader is really the head of the company because that's where it was founded. And we're yeah. building this stuff. Why can't you guys sell it? Right. Or the product person says, hey, what you guys are building and what you guys are selling, we're not capable of actually producing in a product like our customer doesn't even want that. Our customers are telling us this. You can't sell this stuff. So when you have a bunch of silos and you're holding people accountable, what you get is a bunch of finger pointing, which then self-destructs over time. It can work for a while. Right. And it can grow a company to a certain stage. But at almost every single point, if all three of those cogs, of those wheels aren't aligned, that culture and that system will self-destruct eventually. Hey, thanks for listening. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. If you're a startup founder or executive running a growing business, you know that as you scale, your systems break down and the cracks start to show. If this resonates with you, there are three numbers you need to know. 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. 1. Because your business is one of a kind, so you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com metrics. That's netsuite.com metrics to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com metrics. So... I heard this interesting quote once that the reason that most CFOs quit 
isn't because of their relationship with their CEO or their board. It's that the relationship with their peers becomes flawed or irreparable. Do you think that's true? That is true. I think the kernel, the nugget of truth there is not one or the other. Let's get to the fact that a CFO quits because of relationships, period. I think that's really interesting. It's a people problem regardless of who it is. It's a people problem. You may have good relationships, but but now we circle back to this ability to storytell. So you can't be the CFO of no. You have to be the CFO of why. Why is it we're only spending these resources or we only have these constraints? Why am I recommending these constraints? It's because this aligns to our strategy or we have a finance philosophy. Like we always have to have a finance strategy philosophy that we have to get funded within 18 months. And we're putting too much risk on a company, on our company to spend this money so fast in any one of your areas. So I can't give you the budget. We can't spend the money. It's not, I can't give the money as a CFO. It's like, it's reminding the team that we've all agreed that we have these higher level metrics and strategies. And these are the first principles. We can't run out of money. We have to be funded. We have to be fundable. We have to grow our revenue. We may not achieve all of our plans, but we have to get to a minimum viable level of each of our plans. And you're the person, the CFO is the person holding all of this together and just being the messenger, the metrics messenger. To drill into the storytelling piece, do you think that there are different buckets of storytelling or types of storytelling that CFOs do? Interesting. I haven't thought about buckets of storytelling, but certainly there is storytelling to investors. Yep. And that's sales in some way. That's definitely sales, right? Because there's a kernel of consistency in storytelling across either whether you're an investor, your executive peer group, Mm-hmm. or your direct team. You're telling a similar story, but a different story. Why? Because you have different audiences. In mm. each of those audiences, yeah. you have to be critically adept at understanding of what their motivations are. When are you going on too long? You have to speak to your audience level. When are you going into too much detail? When are you not going into too much detail? Investors don't have a lot of patience for detail. They just want to hear the CNBC. We just released our quarterly earnings and I only have two minutes soundbite to be able to say whether this company did great or not in the quarter. That's kind of like really what investors want to hear. And and then if they want to drill, drill. Your direct team on the other end of that spectrum wants to know all the details about how we're going to close the books faster or how we're going to deliver, you know, FP&A reports better or whether we, you know, have enough people to do the job of closing the books fast enough and you're just driving us too hard because we don't have enough resources. So now you're really into a storytelling on their level. And then your exec team is what I've been describing is making sure you're storytelling that it's not just one team member, it's all of us. And here's how it all connects together. That checks out too. It's kind of like you have to form fit your storytelling to the audience as well as the audience's incentives. And not forget the audience's motivations or incentives. You have to tell stories from your audience member's seat, not from your seat. Yeah. And I've made that mistake. Well, I've made that mistake. I've made that mistake for years in my career. Just like, trying to blind you with numbers, throwing them left, right, center. And it's like, well, what do they actually want to hear? <laughs> what's the so what behind this? What's the so what? And what are the three things or less that you want that audience to take away, knowing there's so much more? See, one of the fallacies of being at the unique intersection of all of the data and having the brains that financial people have mm-hmm. of pattern matching and planning, and they've got all this data in their head and notebooks full of data is you have too much detail. 
And one of the biggest problems at every level of finance leader is thinking that everyone wants to see that same detail because that's how your brain works. Really what they want to see when you show them a sea of numbers or a spreadsheet is what are the three numbers on that chart that makes a difference? If you listen carefully to when you're presenting these numbers and you need to be a listener, not as much of a talker, listen for questions from your audience because the questions are where their head's at. You may not get it right the first time, but let's take investors or a board meeting. You can almost pattern match the same questions the board members will keep asking every time you throw a financial chart up. And it always is around revenue growth, EBITDA, maybe if you're in a SaaS business, CAC or lifetime value, because that's where those investors see value in a company. But if you miss listening for those patterns and you just keep presenting the same numbers over and over, that investor or that board member doesn't feel like they're connected to you. Now, alternatively, if you come back and say, okay, I know you all care about revenue growth and EBITDA and the five metrics, whatever they are. Mm They'll be like, oh my gosh, this person's reading my mind. Yeah. See, that's where you want to be. You're delivering the insights before they have to ask it. That takes a listening skill. That takes a sitting in the audience's seat, framing, and then delivering just a portion of your material to them that, that satisfies their need and waiting to go deeper as they lead you deeper. They may not want to go deeper, and some do. But too many times we, and I've done this, made this mistake so many times, start at the bottom Look at all this detail. I'm going to show you all the detail. I'm going to talk for 30 minutes. Okay, any questions? And everybody's so mesmerized at the detail, they don't even know where to start with their question because you've confused them. Yeah. It's like the Ernest Hemingway quote, sorry, I didn't have enough time to write you a short letter. Perfect. And I think in many ways, people who of a high intelligence, so you get this if you talk to a developer and my friend, Brian Morrissey, he, he has the rebooting podcast and newsletter. He's more in the media space. He describes it as the tyranny of knowledge. And what that is, is that you just have such a hard time getting out of the weeds because you're in it every day, you're living it, and you're operating at this level that's so complex. It's like, how do you get out of that to describe it in a way that's not only simple, making the complex simple, but making it intriguing and part of a larger story? You'll hear some of the best leaders, and I picked this up over my years, talk about first principles. What's that? Can you describe what first principles are? First principles are what are the three to five things that have to be true no matter what? And amongst this tyranny, what you call this tyranny of knowledge, what are the three to five things amongst all this that has to be true for us to be successful? What is the first principle? This has to be true or we won't get funded. This second bullet point has to be true or we won't hire the right staff. You will find that if you challenge yourself, there are really only a handful of first principles that must be adhered to and everything else is subservient to those. It's hard making that list simple, but the great CFOs focus on those, what you'll hear it said, three to five metrics or our first principles of finance, whatever those are, develop them and and dive down underneath the iceberg from there in your tyranny of knowledge. I love the first principles bit. It reminds me of um, Sam Zell, famous real estate investor, said in any deal, there are a thousand things that you have to look at, but there's only one thing you have to nail that could go wrong. It's kind of like picking out that one thing from all the other things that everything else hinges on. When you can think like this as a finance leader or a CFO, it then helps you in the most struggling moments, the most critical moments when people's emotions and their lizard brains are going off because they're panicking because we're not hitting our numbers. Yeah. And we're going down rabbit hole after rabbit hole in an exec meeting. 
And all of a sudden, when you can hold these first principles and remind the group, hey, above all else, we just have to make sure we do this, right? When you can be that leader and mm. remind people what those first principles are and then story tell what needs to be done across different areas of the company that reflects the numbers, you, you escalate your influence amazingly. Do you think great CFOs like a great athlete are able to shut off that lizard brain at some point? I think every great leader has to shut off that lizard brain at some point and most can't do it, right? So this is what we're all learning. Yeah. Over our, some learn it faster, some learn it slower. Eventually either learn it or you don't make it to the next level of this sport of business. You can be a great high school athlete and never make it to college. You can be a great college athlete and never make it to the pros. Eventually you won't make it to that next level if you don't have this capability. I have this theory that execs are paid more, not just because they make right decisions, but because they're actually willing to step up and make a decision. Do you think that's true to a certain extent? I think it's true to a large extent. I think there's a fallacy of a right decision. I think as you gain more and more experience, the great leaders understand that at any point in time, they can only be 80% right. If you're 80% right, fine. If people aren't comfortable with that, call it 85% right. I'm never going to say that every leader is more than 90% right. It's just not true. In any walk of life, in anything that you do, if you're 80 to 85% right, you will be remarkably successful. Unbelievably successful. Can you go deeper into that? Because I feel like there are a lot of CFOs and people aspiring to be CFOs who, who are very afraid to make a mistake. And this is the problem, right? And so, so I talk about this a lot with my clients. Being 80 to 85% right is awesome. But what does that mean? That means you're 15 to 20% wrong. If you're 80 to 85% right, then you're 15 to 20% wrong, right? Yeah. We're black and white. I can't be 15 to 20% wrong. I've got to be perfect. No, whether you're a CFO or a leader, you have to course correct quickly. Here's an axiom of life, right? You did Hemingway. I'll do Darwin. In order to grow, you have to learn. You have to improve from learning. In order to learn, you have to fail. Yeah. We don't learn how to walk and talk without falling down a lot and having our speech corrected and, and learning how to, like, everything we've ever done as humans means that we failed, we've learned from failure, and we've grown. But if you're 100% right all the time, or you're so restricted that you have to be 100% right, guess what? You're not in that 15 to 20% zone of learning, and you're not course correcting quickly, and you're not growing properly. So I, I like to flip that. In fact, don't be 100% right. One of my favorite phrases that I think I came up with, I don't think I heard it anywhere else, but I said it with one of my clients about two years ago, is perfection is a prison. Ooh, that's a hot one. We're making that a soundbite. Producer Nancy, write that one down. Right. It just rolled off my tongue one time as I was trying to describe, like, perfection is a prison. Why is perfection a prison? Because there's nowhere else to go but down, point one. Oof. Point two, you are constraining yourself so much from any new learning that you're not growing. And if you're not mm. growing, you're not improving. You can be right and stand still. But that's not the goal of business. The goal of business is a return on investment, which means that you're making a bet that if you make this investment, you're going to get results. Are you for sure going to get those results? No. You're trying to increase the probability of success and decrease the probability of failure. 
but that means there's always a probability of failure, yeah. never at 100%. So living that line of what's right and what's wrong and course correcting quickly is the key to being a great leader, a great CFO, yeah. and embracing it. I see Reed Hoffman's book, Behind You, Masters of Scale. That's a great one. I think you had a quote that I'm, I'm okay with some foot faults as long as you're 80% right most of the time and like you can course correct. You're willing to quickly say, hey, I messed up and I can try to fix it. Reed sat on our board at Mozilla and I was in every board meeting and I've, I've learned a lot from Reed. So maybe I picked up some of this 80% from him. I'm sure he's, he's got many more quotes like that. What, but he's what right. was it like having him on your board? What was his personality like? Oh, he's a strategist through and through. He's amazing. He's a great pre-reader. He will sit there. And um, I picked up a lot of my first principle thinking from him. I'd heard it, but I've never seen it actually done in action. And he will always come back to first principles. He will always come back to strategy. He will always come back to what the desired outcome is. And he will bring the groups back from rabbit holes quickly. Did he ever challenge you on something directly? He challenged on us all the time. Absolutely. Because it's not, it wasn't first principle thinking. Did any examples of something you laid out there in a board meeting come to mind? And he was like, no, 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 no. Yeah, I don't want to divulge anything, but a lot around our relationship, Firefox relationship with the Google contract, Firefox Got relationship it. with the Yahoo contract. We were entertaining having Bing as our search engine for a while. And we were playing in, a, you know, all three of those were very major decisions and they all had their risks and their, their pros and their cons. And Reed was just masterful at summarizing the pros and the cons of having Google as a search partner, Bing, Yahoo, you know, what risk are we willing to take? You know, that's just one example. Can you speak to what a good relationship is between a CFO and their board? What role they play? Because the CFO is kind of sandwiched in the middle in many occasions between the CEO, they're the right-hand person to the CEO, confidant. And then you also have to be truth teller. That's board. exactly the word I was going to use, truth teller. I think the great CFOs will tell you that they're truth tellers and they're, they are more reporters and truth tellers. I would encourage every CFO or any finance leader, you don't have to be a CFO, but I do encourage every leader, and I certainly encourage my clients this, to establish the same relationships with their individual board members as you do with your CEO. And it's the same principle relationship first based on trust, integrity without compromise. I'm just going to tell you the truth, the hard truth, right? The facts. I'm not going to try to be perfect, but I'm just going to try to be the concise storyteller of the facts and having a clear point of view and having a recommendation, but willing to listen to everybody else's as well. So this is the kind of relationship that when you can build with your CEO or the board or individual members, it works. It's super difficult to build a relationship with a group of people. If all you're doing is try to influence the five people on your board, you have to divide and conquer, try to establish relationships, which not only so when you get into the room and they get in as a team, they've heard it before from you one-on-one -on -one and they can echo what you're saying. And then it brings more credibility because they've heard it before and they're echoing. And then when others are echoing, and that's work. You have to carve out time, right? Many of us are so busy, and I had to learn this lesson. Just closing the books, just getting it done, just trying to make a perfect report. Yep. And you feel great about that. But many times, most times, what separates the great CFOs is they actually carve out time in their calendar to have those one-on-ones. Just, hey, I just want to update you. You tell your CEO very transparently that you're having these meetings as well, right? And why you're having these meetings. 
it's to the benefit of the CEO CFO partnership to hear two different voices, right? We have to represent ourselves as being partners with each other and having different viewpoints. And the board wants to hear that. They don't want a CFO that is a yes person to a CEO. They don't want a CEO that only does what the CFO tells them to do or provides them to do. They want, they want a healthy partnership. And that can be intimidating because the CEO is many times the founder of the company has more of a track record with the investors and is, is your boss. I mean, I guess the board is your boss to a certain extent, but that can be a tricky line to walk. It's tricky, but it's just like anything else. It's practice, right? Yes. It's understanding that, and I, I know where you're coming from on this because I certainly have been through this in my own head. It's tricky because everyone thinks that there is a right way of doing something, that there's a perfect way of talking to a board. The reality is when you talk to all the great leaders who have scaled companies, the reality is that building a business is messy, full of mistakes and full of pivots and full of fast course correcting. And the more you can actually embrace that and try to play in the 80 to 85% zone and then produce corrective action plans to try to get 80 to 85 and 85 to 90% and 90 to 90, like, okay, we made a mistake or we didn't anticipate this, here's what we're going to do to correct it. A board wants to hear that all the time, all day, every day, because they know it's messy building a business. What a board doesn't want to hear is a hide the ball, like we're not even going to tell them the bad news, because if it's bad news, they might fire us. I wrote a blog post a long time ago, transparency requires trust, or trust requires transparency either way. Yeah, It's hard, it's intimidating to be transparent, but when you are, it just opens up the relationship that we circle back to. Do you think hide the ball is something that a lot of first-time CFOs mess up on? And CEOs. And CEOs. Can you say more about that? A lot of it is driven from the CEO who is in fear of their board to be more of a truth teller. And a lot of it is, no, you can't display those numbers because if you display those numbers, then all of my messaging about how great we're doing is going to produce lack of confidence. And so there's a lot of times the CEO is suppressing the facts. And so this is the art behind building the relationship with the CEO is agreeing before you go into a board meeting that from first principle, like, what is it that we're really trying to do as a partnership? Yeah. They want to see a CEO striving for greatness and, and really extending the ball out there, right? And really throwing it downfield. And they want to see a CFO saying, that's great, but we should only do that one out of four plays. And we should like, you know, just dump the ball off and get a first down. Like, like first principle, we need to like maintain the ball before we score. You know, this is what a board wants to see. They want to see this control plus just outlandish CEO thinking. Can you speak to how being vulnerable as a CFO plays into the skill set? I don't think that's a quality that many people, when they see CFO written down, immediately jump to. Well, again, this goes back to this perception, and it's most predominant in probably finance people. Of perfection? Of perfection that you have. Yeah, number has to be right. The number has to be directional, and this is the thing, right? The number has to be in the range. One of the biggest fallacies in being a CFO is that the number has to be right. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. When in reality, as long as the number's in a range that's acceptable, then it's acceptable. There's a big difference between that's our number and if I miss that number, we failed versus 
there's a range that we need to be in to be great. There's another range that we will be, if we hit this range, we're only good. And if we hit this range, we're bad. That's not a number. It's a range of success. And that range then plays into this 80 to 85% framework that I'm talking about. Right. When you can think in ranges and you can think in bets and how do we invest more of what's working and course correct quickly and invest less of what's not, how do we challenge our assumptions? Your question was on vulnerability. So when you can get out of the mode of having to be perfect and saying we are going to be wrong, but we're going to fall within a range, but we're going to course correct quickly, invest more of what's working and quickly de-invest in what's not, then you're actually telling people what your first principles are that nobody's perfect and that you're saying who you are and how you're going to help lead this company. And that's, that's vulnerable and being confident enough to say, we aren't going to talk about a pure number. We're going to talk about a range of numbers. And here's why. Because success isn't binary, right? It's a range of outcomes. Well, and yet most startups believe that if we don't hit the 80, $5.6 million of revenue or pick your number that we didn't hit our number and no one gets a bonus. Like that's not how life works. That's not how public companies work. Public companies, you'll never hear a CFO or or a, a CEO talk about a number. Our guidance is this range. It's X millions of dollars to the Y millions of dollars next quarter. Our guidance is between 16 and 20% revenue growth. Like these are large ranges Yeah, that if you hit them, that you'll be fine. It's not, we're going to grow 18.6%. No, you'll never, ever hear. And there's a reason for that because you cannot predict it. And there's no, there's no value in predicting it. A number, there's a value in a range. There's no value in a number. Can you think of a time where you had to communicate maybe a, a message that things weren't going well as a CFO or as a finance leader and how you went about doing it? So I'm going to say that almost always you're in that mode. It's not, can I think of a time or if you're operating properly, there's something Mm -hmm. that's always not going well. The question then is how important is it that it's not going well? And what's the risk of that thing not going well? Many times that thing that's not going well, or that set of things not going well, isn't really sensitive to the metrics that you're driving for. And so you're constantly trying to reprioritize the activities of a company around the axis that I call important. If you draw this axis on a real simple two axis thing, is it really important and how capable are we or what's the risk? You can either put capability on that lower axis or risk. If it's highly important, but low risk, it's maybe not as much of a priority as super highly important and high risk. Again, we're talking either in ranges or grids or whatever, but you have to actually, it's contextualizing what you're investing in and why on importance. Many times I do the importance versus capability matrix. Jim, what are some of the key frameworks that you like to rely on? Yeah, that's a great question because I think this comes back to leadership. So the one I've developed over time with my clients, which they love, not just me, I I developed it, but they love it because they've instituted it in their board packages is this framework of where we were, where we are, and where we're going. It's a very simple way of talking to any audience. We were here with our numbers. We are now here. Here this is we made to get there. This is like you are here on the map, and here's where we're going. When you can frame out where we were in the metrics, where we are in the metrics, or in the finest storytelling and where we're going, it really helps 
the audience align the numbers to the strategy. So that's one. The second one is in times of crisis, because there's always crisis, and I, you asked this earlier, I developed this framework, and I actually talked about this on my strategic financial leadership, and I think one of the podcasts you may have listened to, and this was during COVID and the SPB. Here's what we know, here's what we don't know yet, and here's when we think we'll know. That brings along the transparency because all of the people in crisis expect all these leaders and the CFO to have the answer. You have to tell me that you're not going to fire me. You have to tell me that we're not going under. You have to, you know, they're looking for that one answer, that one number. And yet you can be vulnerable. Let's bring the vulnerability thing back by saying, here's what we know right now. Here's what we don't know right now because this situation is developing. But here's when we'll know and when we'll know. Here's when we're likely to make decisions based on this situation developing. An example, you'll see this time and time again. And I'm pretty sure I came up with this framework. I didn't steal this from anybody, though I do steal a lot from other people. But when Amazon goes down, Mm -hmm. and Amazon's gone down a lot, when Google goes down, when you get the CEO letter from Amazon or Jeff or the head of AWS in the past or Google apologizing for their system going down, when you really look at their letters to customers or any crisis, You'll actually see this framework in practice. And I think I developed by reading so many of these letters like, oh, man, that communication in that time, they did a good job. What is it they were actually saying? Their first paragraph, I realized, is here's what we know. This is what Mm -hmm. I pat. This is how my brain works. They described in the first paragraph, here's what we know. They described in the next paragraph, here's what we don't know yet about the situation that's developing. You can see this at the highest level of politics and business. And when you can use that framework, it's awesome to communicate. I like it too, because it's vulnerably confident because you're saying, this is what I don't know, but you're confident enough that you're going to figure it out with the yet. This is what we don't know yet. Here's the steps we're going to take to figure it out. It's going to take some time. We'll come back to you when we do figure it out. We're just telling you that we don't have all the answers because guess what? Nobody does. And the feedback you get from teams when you do this, your direct team and your company is off the charts. Immediately, you'll get the feedback, or you'll get it later, either directly or indirectly through surveys, many times directly. Wow, I've never had a CEO or CFO talk to me this way. I've never had them be like, I felt like I was inside the person's head. You know what? You feel like you're there with them, and you have some vested interest too in like figuring it out. I think it kind of brings them into the fold. So it's not like us versus them. You're all kind of trying to figure it out together. And now you're winning as a team and you're losing as a team. You're not guaranteeing that things are going to work out, but we're a team. And I'm going to tell you what I know, what I don't know. I'm going to tell you from my CFO lens or the CEO lens, however you want to do it, of why it matters, why we're concerned about it. Mm -hmm. Think about sheltering in place for COVID. Nobody had any of the answers. But the people that communicated, here's what we know, here's what we don't know yet. Like we may have to call people, like we don't know we're calling people back in the office if ever. We figured out as we went, but the people that communicated that way, they were like, wow, I really trust that leadership team because, because yeah, they just told me trust. the truth. Bill's right. trust. They didn't treat me like a baby. They told me what they didn't know. 100%. But I'm confident that's they'll a, fix it. That's a huge framework. Please, please, everyone listening to this, use that. Like You will find it works. It works. I've used it several times. And I didn't used to have this in my arsenal, but it works. It's hard. It's hard to be that transparent. But you get off those calls that you the first time and like, oh, I got to do that again. That was great. It's so freeing. <laughs> it's so freeing, right? The third one is maybe something similar. It's this is what happened. This is why we think it happened or our blind spot 
on the why because we're not perfect. And you actually go into nobody can predict perfectly. We're humans. If we predicted perfectly, we'd all be rich because we would all be predicting the next stock price or interest rates. We're not. This is what happened. This is why it happened. And this is what we're doing about it so it doesn't happen again. In other words, we made a mistake. We now understand why we made it. We did have a blind spot. We didn't anticipate that you know, exogenous thing coming in to the system. If we would have anticipated, it wouldn't have happened, see? But so, yeah, we got blindsided by this. But you know, let's think of security, right? Uh, someone broke into our system. Or, so we're going to harden our system so it never happens again. We're just telling the truth. We're truth tellers. So there's your, there's your frameworks. I love that. I got to write about this and riff on it. This is amazing. Is there one learning as the first finance person on that team that you took away with you throughout the rest of your career, something that shaped you in those early Netflix days? I think it's the same learning I got at Intuit and the same learning I received at Mozilla, which is probably the number one thing that you need to do, whether you're in finance or a leader, is be close to the customer. Building your operations is all around the customer. It's all around being close to the customer. And many times, many companies don't know what that really means. It means actually talking to your customers. It means actually listening to the problems. It means solving the, you know, my disk didn't come back for five days. Why is that? Well, we got to solve that. And so I figured out, we figured out in those early days how to use Express Shipping to get those first class mail packages there in one day to Boston from San Jose. Mm -hmm. uh, versus the regular mail that we were using, which would take three days. Now, there was a technique that we used, but we did it because the customers really wanted their disk faster. So the lesson is be super, super close to your customer. The lessons were be super, super agile. Because in the earliest days, perfection is not what you're seeking. It's getting better every day. It's working out every day and getting better every day, which means you got to be agile. You, you cannot have a lot of structure in that kind of company. As you get more successful and as your customers really start relying on you to deliver the same quality of product all the time, then you need to be start layering in structure and management. After you nail that first, that core customer need, you're saying, don't do anything else until you figure that out first. 100%. And design all your finance and all your systems around that. Like, do you really need to close the books if our customers aren't happy with our product? No. No, we can delay that one. Yeah, we, we can put that one on the back burner. So I want to move into what we call the long ass lightning round here and give you a couple <laughs> quick hitters. So the Got first it. one I wanted to ask you is, can you give us an example of something throughout your career that you may have messed up on the job? I did walk into board meetings with detailed spreadsheets with all the backup in my, like I was not going to have anybody poke holes into my awesome reporting, yeah. right? I was just going to have everything ticked and tied. And yeah, I, I would say that's probably the number one thing I messed up for at least, probably at least 10 years of my career. Because you were thinking too in the weeds, you're saying, when you went into the meeting? 100%. 100%. All the time. And I'm like, oh man, that meeting went great. They didn't ask any questions. Yeah. That's awesome. Man, I, I nailed it. Guess what? You find out the hard way that the reason they didn't ask any questions is because you either displayed this, please don't ask me a question because I've got all the answers and this bravado, right? Mm. But you didn't establish a relationship because they're not engaging with you. You're not actually having a conversation because you're not having a conversation, not engaging. They're not developing a relationship. And now you're just the answer person. If yeah. you're just the answer person, 
you're no better than Google search engine. Don't be that person. I wasn't that person for the longest time. So in your practice, you talk to a lot of CFOs who are picking out their software tool stacks. Let's say you're coming into a company, you're the CFO, you're at say 10 million a day, but you're hoping to be at 100 million in ARR in the next 18 months. What are some of the tools that you would go out and buy? How would you build your tool stack as a CFO? The tool stack is changing so rapidly that the only thing I would say, and I was a big systems person dating, like I always think in systems, but your system, no matter what it is, there's going to be three versions of whatever system it is for your stack. I guarantee yeah. it. The question is not, is, is that the right tool for my stack? Travel, you know, RevRec, Salesforce, CRM type system, engineering development system. I mean, there's, there's hundreds. That's not the question of picking the right ones. The question is, does that, that system has to have a very open API and it has Ooh. to have the ability to talk to the other systems. There is no one ring to rule them all system. Extracting the information out of those systems in an API way and having them talk to their systems is the critical link. That's not a specific answer, but I think it's an important contextual answer. Last one I got for you here. Hopefully a fun one. What's the craziest thing you've ever had someone try to expense in all your years? A $20,000 annual flight pass from my head of sales because the person was convincing me they were going to make that many flights and they produced that spreadsheet and I'm going to save the company money by buying a $20,000 annual flight pass. Did you approve it? No, that was a quick no, because that means that that person will be traveling to all those places. That might need to be the best idea. Perverse incentive to travel. It's a, thank you. It's a perverse incentive to travel. And that may not be the best idea for the company when they're trying to build their team. And maybe they don't need to travel. Maybe they need to actually have more, um, nowadays, more Zoom meetings. Back then it wasn't Zoom, but but yeah. no, that wasn't a good idea in my view. And so I talked through my why. Of, I'm not a CFO of no, I'm a CFO of why not. Why or why not? Ooh, that's a great soundbite. CFO of why not. Jim, this has been amazing. Thanks for letting me sit down with you and learn from you. I know the audience appreciates it as well. And um, where can people find you if, if they want to get in touch for, for more advice? Hit me up on LinkedIn. Hit me up on email, jimcook at benchboard.com. Hit me up on Twitter at cookflix, C-O-K-F-L-X. Yeah, cookflix. That's yeah. the best handle I've heard in a while. Yeah, there you go. Created a long time ago. Cool. Thanks, Jim. Really appreciate it. You bet. I, I appreciate it, CJ, and it was, it was a fun conversation. Run the Numbers is a podcast from Turpentine, the network behind Moment of Zen, Econ 102, and more. If you liked the episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or rate us on Spotify. Do it.